This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 8. Prophets Without Honor when labor in the Netherlands was scarce in the 1960s, immigration into the country had mainly come from Morocco and Turkey. The immigrants brought their wives and families, and by the 1990s, the continuing immigration and higher birth rates among these communities meant that they were growing at a much faster rate than any other community in the country. The Dutch government's policy had been to emphasize integration without prejudice to everyone's own identity. The few people in public life who objected to the government's immigration and integration policies during this period were not treated kindly. In the 1980s, one maverick politician, Hans John Mott, proclaimed that the Netherlands was full and expressed himself opposed to the multicultural model, insisting that immigrants should either assimilate into the Dutch way of life or leave. Not only was Jan Mott publicly shunned, but in 1986, left-wing activists set fire to a hotel in Kadicham in the south of the country, where his small party was holding a meeting. Jan Mott's wife was among those forced to jump from the building to save their lives, losing a leg in the process. Perhaps in part because of its reputation as the most liberal country in Europe, thanks to its legalization of soft drugs and liberal attitudes towards sexual minorities, by the 1990s, Holland was beginning to experience tensions with its fastest-growing minority group. During this period, a number of politicians privately agreed that the increasing number of Muslims in the Netherlands presented problems too large for any one political party to address, that mass immigration and integration in Holland were not working, and that simply attacking those who raised concerns would no longer address the problem. Free expression was an early clash point. On the 5th of October of 1990, a Muslim religion leader said in a radio program on a Dutch-subsidized radio station in Amsterdam, Those who resist Islam, the order of Islam, or oppose Allah and his prophet, you have permission to kill, hang, slaughter, or banish, as it says in the Sharia. Amen. Oh, in, in 1991, the head of the Dutch Liberal Party, VVD, Fritz Bolkstein, gave a speech and wrote a follow-up article in which he voiced what some other leaders from across the political spectrum were also beginning to worry about. Bolkestein noted that Islam is not only a religion, it is a way of life. In this, its vision runs counter to the liberal separation of church and state. He also highlighted the differences between Islamic attitudes towards, wisdom, towards women and that of Dutch law and custom. While recognizing that the new populations in Holland were clearly not going to go anywhere, Bolkestein concluded that full, real integration into Dutch life was the only answer to the questions he was raising. But there was a final problem, quote, The problem is that we cannot afford to be wrong, end quote. Both speech and article were greeted with huge amounts of criticism. Prime Minister Rude Lubbers called the article dangerous, while another minister accused its author of being insulting to the Muslim community. One prominent opinion journalist claimed that it would fan racist sentiments. In Culture Where Ideas Still Matter, the sociologist Paul Schnabel's 1998 book The Multicultural Illusion, a plea for adaption and assimilation, brought many of these issues further into the acceptable mainstream, as in 2000 did the essay the Multicultural Drama, by the academic and Dutch Labour Party member Paul Scheffer. 
but the public and the politicians were still at a wild divergence. A survey carried out in 1998 discovered that already about half of Dutch people thought that Western European and Muslim ways of life are irreconcilable. The, leader of Bolkestein, the leadership of Bolkestein and others gave their country the advantage of going relatively early through the issues that every other Western country would have to stumble through in the decade ahead. Nevertheless, among the political class, there remained a serious reluctance to tackle the problem. In the end, it took a popular pundit and professor from the political left to make this discussion normal. Until he got onto the subject of Islam, there was nothing remotely right-wing about Pim Fortune. A Marxist university professor and a gay man, Fortian was a high-profile advocate of promiscuity and almost every other libertarian attitude. Only once he got onto the subject of Islam did he become right-wing. His 1997 book, Against the Islamization of Our Culture, focused on the range of challenges that he said Islam posed to Dutch society. All were issues that had until then been campaigning points of the political left. They concluded the fact that Islam had not achieved the separation of church and state, which had been the achievement of Dutch Christianity, a separation that gave the Dutch not only freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and other human rights, but without which the holy space had no guard against clerical intrusion based on holy texts. Another of Fordian's principal objections to Islam was the difference in attitude toward the sexes. He argued that Muslim women in Holland should have the same right to emancipation as all other Dutch women. He seized with fury upon Islamic attitudes towards sexual minorities, his own community. Dutch society had led the world in passing legislation and creating a culture in which equality in between men and women and between heterosexuals and homosexuals had become the norm. The practices of Muslim-majority countries demonstrated, with varying degrees of austerity, that these principles were not compatible with Islam. Yet despite these obvious clashes, Dutch society was trying to pretend that its own tolerance could coexist with the intolerant of the fastest-growing portion of Dutch society. Fordian felt that it could not. Though his newspaper columns and or through his newspaper columns and on popular television programs, Fordian became a master not only at expressing his own views, but also at teasing out the views of other people. On a television discussion show, he acted as flamboyantly as he could in front of a Dutch imam until the imam exploded in rage over Fordian's homosexuality. Mainstream Dutch politicians also told him what they thought of him. During a television debate in 97 about his Islamization book, the leading Labour Party politician and former cabinet minister Marcel Van Dam told Fordian that he was an extremely inferior human being, and this was only a taste of the vitriol to come. By the time, that, time of the 9-11 attacks, Dutch society had been around the central parts of the discussion several times, and Fordian had begun to devote his energy to politics. He was expelled from the party when he had joined, that he had joined when he described Islam as a backward culture but promptly started his own political party, the List Pim Fortune, LPF. Because of its voting system politics, more than perhaps any other country in Europe, it is comparatively easy for new outsider parties to break in. In a matter of weeks in the lead-up to the 2002 national elections, Fordian upturned the whole of Dutch politics. Unrestrained by colleagues, he increasingly warned of the threat to Dutch identity, and in particular, to the country's liberal identity. He warned that multiculturalism was not working and was instead seeing the growth of parallel societies, especially in the growth of the Muslim ghettos. 
He warned that it was five minutes to midnight and that Holland had only this brief window to turn itself around. Combined with innate showmanship and a refusal to play the media's games on its own terms, in the run-up to the 2002 election, it looked as though the population was willing to trust Fortean with their country. His political opponents threw everything they had at him. They said that he was a racist. They compared him to Hitler. More moderate opponents spoke of him as Mussolini. In a television interview shortly before he died, Fortean talked of the threats to his life that were coming in and said that if anything were to happen to him, his political opponents, who had so demonized him, should be responsible for or should take some of the responsibility for lining up the assassin. They didn't, of course. In just over a week before the election, as Fortean was leaving a radio interview, a man shot him in the head, repeatedly, at close range. The nation took a deep breath of fear that the killer might turn out to be a Muslim. But the culprit turned out to be a far-left vegan activist who, at his subsequent trial, explained that he had killed his victim because he felt Fortean was targeting Muslims. In the aftermath of the murder, the Netherlands went into mourning, and in the ensuing election, voters gave Fortean's party the largest number of seats, a gift it repaid by petty infighting and a total inability to deliver on its mandate. The Dutch public's desire to deal with the challenges at the ballot box were thwarted, and although those who picked up his political mantle included Geert Wilders, who had left the main VDD Liberal, Liberal Party also to form his own, none of Fortean's successors were able to pick up the working class and young entrepreneurial vote that Fortean had been able to. Although the murder of the man who would later be voted the greatest Dutchman of all time shuttered one part of electoral politics, it did, however, allow the debate to widen in the society as a whole. It was not sustainable to believe that Fortean was a fascist, and that a large par proportion of the Dutch pu public also supported a fascist. One of those who continued to speak out in the vacuum left by Fortean was a filmmaker, Theo van Gogh. As well as being friends, the two had appeared on television together many times, not least on van Gogh's show A Pleasant Conversation, at the end of which the presenter would hand his guest a cactus. After Fortean's murder, Van Gogh worked on a film about the murder and continued to write books and articles. In his 2003 book, A la Wiet het Better, A la Knows Best, included a cover image of Van Gogh wearing a Muslim headrobe and staring out as a mimic of the fundamentalists of Islam. In television appearances and public debates, Van Gogh took on the most outspoken Islamists in the Netherlands, including on one occasion the Hezbollah-trained extremist Jababu Jaja, who described himself as the pimp of the prophet. After that event, which stopped when Jaja refused to be on stage with Van Gogh, Jaja's retinue were heard saying, we'll get that pig and cut him open. Around this time at public events, including book signings for Allah Knows Best, Van Gogh started to become nervous for his own security. Then in 2004, he made a short film called Submission about the mistreatment of women within Islam. The script had been written by a young Somali immigrant to the Netherlands, Ayan Hersi Ali, and around the time that the film was screened on Dutch television at the end of August, the threat to the filmmakers grew. Van Gogh refused to accept the security that was offered. It was his view, according to those closest to him, that any Islamist assassins would be unlikely to target the village idiot. Village idiot or not, an assassin did catch up with him as he cycled to work in Amsterdam on the morning of November 2nd, 2004. He was, he was stabbed and in the shot, had his throat slit and stabbed in the chest. 
In the dying moments, Van Gogh said to the murderer, can we talk about this? She was immediate. Um, the knife stuck into his body included a threat to the life of the screenwriter, the scriptwriter. She was immediately spirited out of the country by the Dutch security service, while a number of other Dutch critics of Islam, including the Iranian-born academic Afshin, Afshin Ilian, were also put under police protection. For a period, even the most careful critics of elements of Islam, like the Dutch academic Paul Klatur, silenced themselves. Politicians, academics, journalists, and others had learned the lesson, the tough lesson, that criticizing Islam in the manner in which Dutch society was able to criticize pretty much every other religion was at the very least something that changed your life and was also, unless you had police protection, likely to be deadly. The country that in the past had fostered religious doubt and produced rationalist thinkers like Spinoza was now very anxious on the subject of religion. This, put, this fact put even more pressure on the few people who were not willing to play by the assassin's rules. Among those willing to continue to defy the extremists was a young woman of Somali origin who had fled to Holland ten years before to escape a forced marriage. Hersi Ali was in every way a model migrant. Having arrived in the country, she claimed and was given asylum, and while working basic factory jobs, learned the Dutch language and was soon able to apply to university. She studied at the University of Leiden whilst working with other immigrants as a translator. Just over a decade after arriving in the Netherlands, she received her MA in political science, worked as a researcher, and entered the country's parliament as an MP for the Liberal Party. It was a meteoric immigrant success story. Her success was due to intelligence, charisma, hard work, and exceptional personal bravery. But the swiftness of her rise to prominence also occurred because Dutch society desperately needed some immigrant success stories. Yet it seemed to come as a shock to some on the left in particular that this immigrant refused to say the things that they expected of her. Hersey Ali would later write of the 9-11 attacks that they caused her to, quote, investigate whether the roots of evil can be traced to the faith I grew up with, was the aggression and the hatred inherent to Islam itself, end quote. Six months later, she read a book on atheism that she had been given several years earlier and dared to admit that she was no longer a believer. In her own time, she announced her evolving thoughts in public, but the Dutch media class in particular seemed intent on pushing her, trying to make her say things that they would not say. One interviewer pressed her to use that same crucial word Fordian had used, achterlicht, or backward society. Was Islam backwards compared to Dutch society? There seemed to be two movements pushing at Hersi Ali. One, broadly, coming from the political left, wanting her to say things for which they could then attack her. Another, coming from left and right, wanting her to say things in order to free things up for everybody else to say them. It was harder to accuse a black woman of racism than it was a white man. But nevertheless, the supporters of the status quo found a way around this by claiming that Hersi Ali did not know what she was saying because she was traumatized by experiences, experiences that they insisted were wholly uncommon. As a victim of female genital mutilation, a subject about, about which she would write graphically in the autobiography, someone who had as a teenager received, believed death was a suitable punishment for Salman Rushdie had fled a forced marriage and understood at first hand the challenges of integration, Hersi Ali tackled the most brittle issues. A sign that the coming years were not going to go well 
was that this exemplary immigrant found herself assailed not just by the large proportion of the Dutch political class, but with extraordinary vitriol by the country's Muslim community. Early in her, in her public career, a friend had asked Hersi Ali, don't you realize how small this country is and how explosive it is what you're saying? She re- As she recounted her response in her autobiography, she said, explosive? In a country where prostitution and soft drugs are licit, where euthanasia and abortion are practice, where men cry on TV and naked people walk on the beach, and the Pope is joked about on national television, where the famous author Gerard Reeve is renowned for not or for having fantasized about making love with a donkey, an animal he used as a metaphor for God. Surely nothing I could say would be seen as anything close to explosive in such a context. But it was. Percy Ali had put her finger on the sorest point of Dutch society. A people who like to think of themselves as tolerant and open and decent were wondering whether this tolerance and openness and decency had gone too far. How could they enforce any, any limits? Hersi Ali was telling them that there were limits and she was living proof of some of them. And so, in spite of the threats to her life, both before and after the murder of her colleague Van Gogh, she believed that some things must be said, and there are times when silence becomes an accomplice to injustice. Everywhere in Europe, these same concerns were growing. During the decades in which European governments allowed immigration to run at the levels they did, few, if any, expected that one consequence would be that they would spend the foreseeable future trying to balance Islamic laws and demands with European culture and traditions. Yet, as the immigrant populations grew, everywhere the same problems erupted. Sometimes it occurred because of the discovery of what was going on within the communities. In France in 2004, a young Muslim woman named Jofran Hadawi was stoned to death in Marseille for refusing the advances of a young Muslim man. In the UK, the police admitted that they had failed to investigate scores of suspicious deaths because they had thought that these potential honor killings were community matters. In 2006, the British Medical Association reported that at least 74,000 women in Britain had been subjected to religious genital mutilation. At the same time, individuals from the Muslim communities in Europe who had spoken out publicly about any negative aspects of their culture or who had, or who had appeared to go against their community in any way were increasingly the subject of physical intimidation and violence. From the Norwegian pop star Topeka Thathal, who was attacked on stage in Oslo for her immodesty, to the columnist and activist Noshin Ilias in Italy, minorities within the minority turned out to be perhaps the most threatened people of all. In all the time, there was a slowly growing awareness that the newest incomers to Europe might not all look favorably on some of the oldest. Throughout the multicultural era, it had been assumed that minorities would have their minority status in common with other minorities. The idea that they would bring any of their ancient animosities with them seemed to occur to almost no one in power. But as the numbers grew, this presumption began to crumble. Few non-Muslim Europeans insisted on their right to speak about their continent with greater passion than the famous Italian journalist and author Oriana Fallaci. The only Western journalist ever to have got an interview with Rushdie's persecutor in Iran, Fallaci was in her 70s at the turn of the millennium. In younger days, her celebrated interviews with Khomeini as well as Gen- Colonel Gaddafi, the Shah of Iran, Henry Kissinger, and others had made her perhaps the world's most feared interviewer. 
These encounters up close with power, as well as her travels around the world's war zones, had given her a deadly rage about many things, and a rage against Islam was among them. The daughter of anti-fascists, she had grown up in Mussolini's Italy. Though her father, Falacci, had become involved in anti-fascist activities, and through her father, Falacci, became involved in anti-fascist activities, at the end of her life, she would recall the errands she would run as a girl, hiding hand grenades and lettuce to take them to the opposition headquarters, gun running and posting partisan materials. Her country and her home city, Florence, were occupied from 1943 to 44 by the Nazis, and though she was only in her teens at the time, Falacci, like her family, fought to get her city and her country back. When she talked of fascism, she talked, about the, she talked with the benefit of experience. After her many years of uncompromising and brutal interviews, Balacci turned to fictionalized accounts of her life, including a novel, Inshallah, based upon her experiences of the Civil War in Lebanon. In the 1990s, she retreated into an ever greater solitude, living above her publisher's shop in New York and working on a novel about her family and childhood. When 9-11 happened, one of the things it did was to waken this dormant literary volcano in Manhattan. Within a fortnight, she had completed a long essay that made up a special supplement of the Italian paper Corriel della Sera. It was characteristically tumultuous, heartfelt, torrential, and furious assault on the people who had brought down the tin Twin Towers, on the people who had turned a blind eye to the threat, on the Muslims around the world who celebrated the act, and unfortunately on the religion itself. It was a distinct and passionate production. That edition of Corriere sold out, and Falacci swiftly turned the polemic into a short book published in 2002. The The Rage and the Pride sold more than a million copies in Italy and hundreds of thousands more copies in translations across Europe. It was the defense of vicious counterattacks from the offset and fierce defenses in her homeland from the religious as well as those like Falacci, who were atheists. In the ebb and flow of intellectual and political fashions, it is easy to forget or dismiss as overnight sensations works like the rage and the pride. But almost no work had such a wide and powerful impact on its readers or retained such a strong effect away from polite society. Taking, by her own admission, the form of a jacuse or sermon to the West, Velati's work attacked those who carried out terror in the name of Islam on the increasing of number of Muslims in the West and those in, on those in the West who have no balls to stand up for themselves against these incomers. She wrote, quote, I'm very, very, very angry, angry with a rage which is cold, lucid, and rational, she wrote, a rage which eliminates any detachment, any indulgence, which orders me to answer them and to spit in their face, end quote. And the pitch did not lower from there. Writing of the fight that she and her family were engaged in when she was a child, she compared it with a recent reaction of public officials to the occupation of the Duomo Square in Florence when the Somali Muslims in Florence erected tents around the cathedral. The camp lasted for three months and was a major controversy in Florence at her time. In her polemic, Falacci told of how she had contacted every public official in Florence and then in Italy, demanding to know why they could not clear away this site in the center of the city only to be greeted on each occasion with professions of incapability. She relates that eventually she phoned a local policeman and told him that if he didn't clear the tents away, she would burn them down herself, and he would then have to arrest her and incarcerate her in her own city. Such emasculated Italians, Europeans, and Westerners in general were as much the target of Palacci's rage as Muslims. 
as all were those who would draw comparisons or equality between the world of the West and the world of Islam. While acknowledging the failings and sins of the West, Falaci insisted, I want to defend my culture, not theirs, and I inform you that I, like Dante Alighieri and Shakespeare, and Goethe and Verlaine, and Walt Whitman and Leparty, and much more than Omar Khayyam. She had, she claimed, as much veneration for any work of art as any Muslim professed to have for Mecca. The cultural pride and defiance of Falaci perhaps stood out because it was so rare during the period. <clears throat> Yet, Falaci's style undoubtedly tipped over into something else. In relating the desecration by Somali Muslims in the Duomo Square, she obsessed about their bodily functions, about the excrement and especially the trails of urine from the camp. Though it was when discussing the reproductive habits of the new Muslims of Italy that Falaci walked into trouble. A fixation on the numbers of Muslims coming into Europe and the number of children they brought or had once they were here was not something that Falaci had plucked from nowhere. Nor was her suggestion that this migration or hijra was a declared intention of some Muslim leaders. In The Rage and the Pride, she quotes Islamic leaders who boast that they intended to do exactly as she was describing. She quotes an Islamic scholar who allegedly told a synod at the Vatican in 1999, quote, By means of your democracy, we shall invade you. By means of our religion, we shall dominate you. End quote. It was, as Falaci said, a reverse crusade. All this leads Falaci to conclude that Europe's Muslims are attempting not only a quest of souls, but also a quest of territory. And then, she says, they breed too much, and Italians don't produce babies anymore, those idiots. For decades, they have had and still have had the lowest birth rate in the West. This is the slightly watered-down version that Falaci's publishers released when the author translated her own work into her own idiosyncratic English. But in the original edition, Falaci had unfortunately flavored this with an obs observation that likened Muslims to, frankly, animals. Muslim groups in Italy pressed for Falaci to be prosecuted on the grounds, among others, of vilification of religion. Similar prosecutions against her were attempted in France. This happened in 2002, at the same time as a spate of similar prosecutions were attempted against public figures. In France, the actress-turned-animal rights campaigner Brigitte Bardot was prosecuted for statements including her attacks on the practice of halal slaughter. French Muslim groups also attempted the prosecution of the novelist Michel Houlebecq for saying in an interview that he thought Islam was a stupid religion and the Quran poorly written. The prospect of prosecution in her own home country for offending Islam was not the only threat to Falaci after the publication of The Rage and the Pride. When she returned to Italy, she had to be protected around the clock by the Carabinieri. These and other outrages to her in her home country spurred Falaci to a less disciplined work than the Rage and the Pride. In this, her follow-up sermon, The Force of Reason, which sold as this sold as almost as many copies in continental Europe and saw the same preoccupations taken up a notch. The argument was not devoid of historical or present-day evidence. In defense of her view that Muslims were trying to outbreed Europeans inside Europe, Falaci quoted the former Algerian president Houari Boumediene, when in 1974 he told the General Assembly of the UN, quote, One day millions of men will leave the southern hemisphere of this planet and burst into the northern one, but not as friends, because they will burst into conquer, and they will conquer by populating it with their children. Victory, victory will come to us from the wombs of our women. Whoa. End quote. 
a third and final book by Falacci in a similar vein followed. The noisy wing of the Italian left excoriated Falacci for her final works, but millions of others listened and revered her. Listened to and revered her. In 2005, shortly after becoming the new pope, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger invited Falacci to come and speak with him at his summer residence on the understanding that what they discussed would never be made public. The following year, Falacci died of the cancer she had been battling for decades. Until the end of the legal cases against her were still coming, and the debate around Italy's Cassandra quieted for a few years until events brought her books back to life once again. In the year Falacci died, the new pope himself came into conflict with the force she had excoriated. Pope Benedict, pope Benedict did not issue a Falacci-like screed. Instead, in the course of a speech on faith and reason at the University of Regensburg, he merely quoted a single sentence from the Byzantine emperor Manuel II Palaiologos. Show me, quote, show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman such as is his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached, end quote. Before reading the quote, Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict did say that the phrase had a brusqueness that we find unacceptable. In doing so, he reiterated that he was quoting. Nevertheless, the words went around the world that the Pope had said words which insulted Islam. There were riots across the Muslim world, and a 65-year-old Italian nun was murdered in Somalia. Protests and riots over the cartoons of Muhammad published in Denmark a few months before were already a common occurrence. Now they were joined by other riots and protests about the Pope. The fact that everybody, from Europe's most devout atheists to the head of the Catholic Church, was simultaneously falling foul of the same forces still seemed not to be enough of a warning. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.